There is nothing little in God. His mercy is like himself. It is infinite. You cannot measure it. His mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners after great lengths of time and then gives great favors and great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. His mercy, like himself, is great. That's a quote from Charles Spurgeon in his short devotional on Psalm 52, verse 8. His point is that, that it is God's mercy that, that does all of this, that, that mercy is the only doorway for sinners into the great enjoyments of the great God. Mercy, of course, means to, to treat someone not as they deserve. In the Bible, God's, God's goodness to those in misery is called mercy. It's synonymous with, with compassion. And, and simply put, we all need mercy. All people are in the misery of, of sin. If, if we got what we deserved, if God treated us as we deserved, justice, well, it wouldn't be with great favors and, and great privileges. But the greatest treasure of God's mercy is, is not simply his, his great forgiveness of our great sins, not even the en- great enjoyments of, of heaven, as great as these things are. Don't, don't get me wrong, the, the removal of our guilt is a, a wonderful gift, but it is a means to an end. God's mercy is given so that we might be restored to relationship with Him, to know, to love and enjoy the fullness of God Himself. Mercy is a means to reconciliation, to enjoy fellowship. And while we see that truth throughout the Bible, it is displayed for us in living color through the story of Joseph and his brothers in our passage this morning in Genesis 43. Last week in Genesis 42, we began to study the story of Joseph's pursuit of reconciliation with his brothers, his brothers who had sinned against him by selling him into slavery. His secret plan to test them is in motion. In our passage this morning, we will see how God's mercy is the key through which the reconciliation progresses and points us to the chief blessing of the gospel, restored relationship with our heavenly Father. So our passage this morning, Genesis 43, the merciful brother and the sovereign God. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open there to Genesis 43. If you don't have a Bible, you can find that on page 36 of the Bible provided for you there in the pew rack. While you turn there, let me introduce myself. My name is is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the, the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church Please, I'd invite you to stick around after service so I I can have a chance to to greet you later. 
We will eventually read the entire chapter this morning, but we're going to read it by scene, so in, in three parts. It does take the, the entire, every word of a story to, to get its full meaning, but, but to give us some direction here at the start, we might condense the passage to this. Our main idea today, by his mercy and provision, our almighty God overcomes our sins and relieves our fears. By his mercy and provision, our almighty God overcomes our sins and relieves our fears. When the famine drove Joseph's brothers to bow down before him in our last chapter, he didn't execute revenge. He began to test them to see if they can be trusted. It seems that he holds no, no anger against them and is pursuing reconciliation to see if it's, it's possible. And in, and in this chapter, as the next phase of the, the test continues, God is at work. This is not just Joseph's plan, but, but God's plan, his work to overcome their sins and relieve their fears. By his mercy and provision, our almighty God overcomes our sins and relieves our fears. We will start by reading the first scene in Genesis 43, 1 through 14. But, but before we do, we're going to pray and ask for God's help in our hearing and understanding of his word. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come in the name of our great high priest, in the name of, of love. Lord, as we confess in, in song this morning, he ever lives and pleads for us. And it is our hope because of our great high priest that, that no tongue can tell us to depart from your presence. Or we are invited into the presence of our great God, not because of our deserving, but because of your mercy. Lord, the mercy that is over us because of Christ, our merciful high priest. We pray this morning that, that we would better understand your mercy towards us as we see your mercy toward these brothers through Joseph. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Read with me Genesis 43, starting in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying that you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him wasn't an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our, also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safely. From my hand you shall require it. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. 
Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and rise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. The word of the Lord. Well, if you were waiting for an outline, it's going to come one by one this morning. We're going to see overall five things that God does across the the three scenes of our passage this morning. And first today, brothers and sisters, the first thing that we see God is and does, God is patient. In verses 1 and 2, God is is patient. Our scene here in chapter 43 again takes takes place back in Canaan where nine of Jacob's sons have returned at the end of Genesis 42. They had gone to Egypt, gotten grain and returned in the famine. Well, it's it's a bit more complicated than that. Unbeknownst to them, the, the man over the land was the brother that they had sold into slavery and to test them, Joseph accused them of being spies and imprisoned them for three days and finally released all but one to bring this grain home. So here at the beginning of chapter 43, still one brother, Simeon, remains in the dungeon in Egypt waiting for his brothers to return to rescue him. So here in verse 1, we've, we've jumped forward in time. They didn't go back to fetch their brother Simeon immediately. So Simeon is waiting in prison. Joseph is is waiting for them to return. Jacob, their father, it seems, is, is simply waiting for the grain sacks to empty. I just want to point out that this is the last major time jump in Joseph's story. Chapter 44 and into 45, what Lord willing will study next week, takes place literally the day after chapter 43. So the only remaining time gaps in the story are the the time it takes for people to travel to and from Egypt. And what has God been doing while everyone waits? You know, his name hasn't showed up in our narrative at all. That's been pretty common in these, these verses. Have you thought, as we've studied the the story of Joseph these these last weeks, why didn't God plan for a more expedient timeline? You know, maybe compress it all into just a few weeks. Why is it that Joseph had to wait 13 years total in his service and imprisonment? Why is it that, that Joseph had to wait two years after interpreting the dreams of his fellow prisoners? Why did Joseph have to wait through seven years of plenty before the famine came? Well, the Bible can give us clues of other answers, but the clearest answer it gives, God is patient. He is in no hurry to bring about his plans. I wonder if you recall what 
what God told Adam and Eve, what would happen to them if they sinned against him. He told them that they would die. Do you recall what God did in the flood because he saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth? Well, he blotted man out from the land. Do you recall what God did to the two sons of Judah who were wicked in the sight of the Lord? He put them to death. Clearly, our sovereign God has the right to give sinners what they deserve, death. And certainly, Jacob and his sons have proved that they are among the wicked. Reuben slept with his father's wife. Simeon and Levi put a a whole city to death. Judah slept with a prostitute. All the brothers together schemed to, to first murder and then sell their brother Joseph into slavery. And even their father Jacob is continuing in his destructive partiality. They too deserve death. Well, why is it that, that, for example, Judah's sons were put to death immediately, but God is patient with these sons of Jacob? Well, we have to realize that, that there is no dividing line between those who deserve God's judgment and those who do not. Every person, as a sinner, deserves God's righteous judgment, and that immediately. Friends, God endures with sinners who deserve immediate death because He is merciful, because He is slow to anger, because He is patient. You consider His patience, that that it will be hundreds of, Thousands of years before God fulfills his promises to to send the Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, you consider, why not a more compressed timeline? Why not just do it over a few years? Because God is patient. And again, you consider, why hasn't Christ returned? Why not a more compressed timeline? Why not just a few generations after his first coming? Because God is patient patient. The Apostle Peter encourages us with this truth in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where he writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, his patience from beginning to end in the story of Joseph in sending the Savior, and as we await His return, is because He is patient, not wishing that any should perish. If He was not patient, all would die in their sins, beginning with Adam and Eve. God is not slow, but He is patient. And He is patient with you too, saint. He is working His plans for you over over. Weeks, over months, over years, maybe even beyond your lifetime. And that truth should, should make us patient as well. Patient with ourselves as we are slow to grow, as we continue in the same sins. <coughs> patient with others who continue to sin against us. 
and hopeful toward God. He will do what he has promised, as he has proven time and time again. But he is patient. But that's not all we see in these verses and in the story of Joseph. The second thing we see God doing in these verses, God provides the pledge. So number two, God provides the pledge, this in verses 3 through 10. If in this narrative of Joseph you've been waiting all the way since chapter 38 for for Judah to return, well, well, here it is. Jacob instructs his sons in verse 2 to go back and buy a little food. He has, frankly, no choice at this point. That's either buy food or or die. And in verse 3, Judah speaks up. Now now remember, based on the head count, we we know that he was already back with his brothers back in chapter 42. But but this is the first time that we see him, him speak, to see him in action. Last time we saw Judah, back in 38... He was a self-serving and, and wicked man. At the end of those 20 years that that chapter covers, though, he, he was, we think, converted. When his sin was brought into the light, he confessed and repented. His behavior changed. Well, here in chapter 43, we finally see that new man, that converted man in action. He is courageous to stand up to his his father. So here in, in verse, verses going forward in chapter, or chapter 43, verse 3, he, he reminds his, his father that the governor had told them that they must bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, back with them. He was to be their proof that they were not liars and spies, that they were indeed honest men. So Judah says in, in verse 4, if you will send Benjamin, then we will go. But verse 5, if you will not send Benjamin, we will not go. Jacob, called by his new name Israel here in verse 6, is is petty towards his sons. He he complains that they mentioned their youngest brother at all. And it's it's not a, a fair complaint. The brothers point out that there is no way that they could have known what they would what this governor would have done with that information. These were simply honest answers. Well, Judah steps up to his petty father again. He says that he would be the surety. Now, you might remember from the end of chapter 42 that, that Reuben had tried to make an offer to give his father, Jacob, assurance to send Benjamin with them. You might remember that, that though it was an underwhelming offer, that, that Jacob could entrust Benjamin to, to Reuben. It didn't give Jacob much assurance because of how how flippant he was. His security was his two sons. If he doesn't return with Benjamin, he says, you can kill my two sons. Well, here Judah takes leadership again to protect life. He says, we, you, and all our little ones, they're, they're children. But instead, he offers himself. I, he says, will be a pledge of Benjamin's Safely, you can require it at my hand. I will bear the blame forever. Judah takes full personal responsibility. A pledge is something offered in security. 
until the promise is fulfilled. In fact, we, we saw this word show up back in, in Judah's story before, where he offered as pledge the signet, the cord, and the staff until he could offer payment to Tamar, the, the goat they had agreed on. Well, here, after four chapters of narrative, he offers himself as pledge as the story of Judah joins with the story of Joseph at last. So we wonder, how did Judah become such a man of leadership and integrity among his brothers, of of sacrifice? Well, it is because God is patient. That God had spent 20 years patiently preparing the man who would become this selfless pledge of Benjamin's safety. Unless you'd read the story before, you would have no clue when reading chapter 38 what role Judah would have in the story later, long before the hour. And in fact, for decades, God was working, getting every piece prepared. And here, in the hour that requires a man of integrity and selflessness, he is ready because God provides the pledge. What we have, I think, in the story of Judah here is a a microcosm, a a small-scale example of what also God does over thousands of years in all of Israel's history. God, through the acts of all of redemptive history, is preparing the pledge. He is working not just through the lifetime of, of one man, but through thousands of generations to bring the one who would be the pledge for us. That's, I think, the message of every genealogy of the Bible. God is preparing the offspring of Eve, the seed of Abraham, and in fact, the descendant of Judah himself, on and on to be our pledge. Let me ask you how do you know that all of what God has promised will be true? For example, the the God who promised will bring you back to be with him one day. It is because he has offered a pledge. In security, until all the promises have been fulfilled, he has offered Jesus. Jesus gives himself to assure us that all the promises of God will come to pass. Paul, the apostle, for example, tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Or elsewhere, he says that that God, who did not spare his own son, will with him graciously give us all things. Well, if that's the the assurance we have that, that God will be faithful to his promise, how can you be sure that this is not just true in general, God will be faithful but true for you personally, that these promises will be true for you? Well, it's because he gives the pledge of the Spirit of Christ, his Holy Spirit, until you acquire possession of these promises. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you have assurance. God will accomplish all that he has promised, not just in general, but for you personally. So the question might be then, how do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? Can you have this assurance? 
Well, if you can cry out to God in faith as Abba Father, you have the Spirit. If He bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God, then you have the Spirit. If you live a holy life filled with the fruit of the Spirit, you can have assurance that you too have the Spirit. Just a technical note for you. What we're studying here in in Genesis 43 means that not only is Joseph a a type, a, a pattern of the coming Christ, as we have seen chapter after chapter, but so is Judah. It's like hearing a a song in in stereo, two different speakers that make the sound surround you. We're getting a, a fuller sound of the coming Christ, more than even one man can picture. In fact, the Old Testament is filled with hundreds of these pictures of the Christ who is to come. When Christ finally does come, he doesn't just do what the prophets said he would do but also follows all of the patterns of the events, the institutions, the the people of the Old Testament. This correspondence is known as typology. It's the principle that there is designed by God a purposeful correspondence within the Old Testament and into the New Testament rooted in God's ordering of all history. Jesus fulfills not only the Old Testament predictions, but it's people like Judah and Joseph here. Even if they in themselves carry no explicit reference to the future. So just like Judah, who was the the pledge of assurance to relieve Jacob's fears, so Jesus, saints, is given as a pledge to relieve our fears. Do you ever wonder, will God's promises come to pass? If they do, will they come to pass for me? Well, it's as we sang earlier, Jesus stands before the throne of God as a pledge. By his death, your sinful soul is counted free. Your life is now hid with him on high. Colossians 3, 4. And therefore, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Christ is your pledge. It will be true for you. The better brother than Jodah is the pledge of your life. God himself provides the pledge. And not only in Christ do we have assurance that, that for the future, one day when he appears... In fact, today we know that because Christ is before the throne of God above, that God hears our prayers. The third thing, brothers and sisters, we see God doing in this passage, that God hears prayer. So number three, God hears prayer in verses 11 through 14. God hears prayer. Still in this first scene with the brothers With Jacob, after Judah's offer, Jacob utters a a benediction, a a prayer in verse 14. But first, before that, in verse 11, he directs them to take a gift to Joseph. And when you think about it, it's quite the gift considering the famine. In verse 12, he also directs them to take double the money with them, to return what, 
what they had planned on using to buy the first time plus money to buy more grain. But what we find is that Jacob is not depending on the gifts and the payment. His next words in verse 14 are not, May the gift and the payment buy you favor with the man. No. His animating and confident hope is expressed in verse 14. His benediction and prayer. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. If the brothers find mercy before the governor, it is because God Almighty grants it. This verse here, 14, is is spoken like a benediction, a a proclamation of God's blessing over the sons. So it it is a third person prayer. Instead of speaking to God for the sons, he speaks to the sons and asks God to act. May God grant mercy. He calls on God here as God Almighty, El Shaddai. This is one of the names that that God revealed to Jacob's forefathers. So when God appeared to Abram back in Genesis 17 and gave him the name Abraham, he also gave himself a name, God Almighty. He is able to do all that he promises because he is Almighty, because he has all might, all power. He is Almighty. Omnipotent. It is our assurance that God can do all His holy will. No purpose of His can be thwarted. So when He asks for mercy, He knows that that God can do it. He is El Shaddai. And the prayer here for His sons is for mercy, that God would grant them mercy. Mercy is is actually the reason why God can be patient and, and wait for repentance. It is because he has mercy that he does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. It is is to withhold the punishment, the justice that we deserve immediately. This word mercy is synonymous. It is often translated as compassion, concern for the sufferings of others. God is merciful. And according to to later revelation to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, he will have mercy. God will have mercy on whom he will show mercy. In other words, there is nothing in us that causes God to be merciful. The reason for his mercy is his mercy. And we see that here in Jacob's prayer. Jacob doesn't pray to God bringing up all the reasons that God should show mercy to his sons because there are none. It is a simple request. May God grant it. Jacob goes on in his his benediction to tell us what that mercy would look like, that the governor would send back both the other brother and Benjamin. Of, Of course, the other brother is a reference to Simeon. But in a wonderful irony, it can actually fit the other, other brother, Joseph. Jacob here has resigned himself to the necessity of the situation. He places his hope not in the strength of his sons, not in his own righteousness, but God's mercy. You know, saints, one of the the best, simplest prayers you can pray in earnest is, Lord, have mercy. To pray it when your heart feels need of Him. 
Rebecca has noticed me uttering at random times, Lord have mercy. She asks why. It is because for whatever reason at that moment, I have a sense, a feeling of my need of God. I feel my need of him, so I ask for mercy, supply what I need. Not because of my righteousness, but because of your mercy. You know, honestly, I think for a patriarch of the faith, you might say that that Jacob's prayer here feels a little lackluster. You might hope that there would be more to it, Jacob. Maybe recount all of God's past faithfulness, how he has shown you mercy time and time again. Thanksgiving, or, or maybe confession. Maybe talk about all of your sins, how you don't deserve mercy. But it's a simple prayer. And hear me, saints. The power of prayer is not in the way you pray. Jesus teaches us we are not heard for our many words. No, the power of prayer is in who we pray to. God Almighty, who is kind enough to hear our prayer. I wonder, saints, what what have you been praying for lately? Better, I ask, what have you stopped for, stopped praying for lately? Have you given up on praying because you feel that your prayers are weak? Let me point out to you in this weak prayer of Genesis 43, 14, that our confidence is not in our words, but in who we pray to. God who hears our prayers. We pray, he says, to God Almighty who is compassionate toward you. And you can have confidence that he hears our prayers. We will, in fact, have the opportunity this morning to see how God answers this prayer definitely when we see them come before the man. But, but before we do, we have to keep reading in our second scene of the brothers now with the steward. So read with me Genesis 43, starting in verse 15, and we'll read to verse 25. Genesis 43, starting in verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and and spoke to him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came back to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he, that is the steward, replied, Peace to you, and do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money, 
And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the men had brought the men, when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, they had washed their feet. And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Well, in, in brief, the brothers arrive a second time in Egypt with the present. And when Joseph sees the now eleven with Benjamin, sorry, that's ten, with Benjamin, the son of his mother with them, he asks the man over his house to, to take them, to prepare a feast for them. Of course, the brothers do not know the reason why they are being brought to Joseph's house. They respond with fear in verse 18. We recall on their first trip that they, they somehow left with all the money that they had used to buy their grain with. So even though they had proved their worth here by bringing Benjamin back, they say here that it is because of the money, that their plan, the Egyptians' plan, is to make them servants. And you know, their fears were, were justified. Even without intent, they really did leave with the money. The governor had the power to, to do to take them captive. And it's, it's ironic, you notice, that they are fearing the very thing that they did to their brother Joseph, sending him to slavery in Egypt. So they explain this all to the steward of the house when they arrive, and his response there is in verse 23. He says, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. So brothers and sisters, the fourth thing we see God doing, God provides treasure. Number four, God provides treasure in verses 15 and 25. You know, I honestly don't know how the steward can tell us this. Moses never really clears it up for us. The the steward is right that they had received the money. They, They had paid. We know for certain in Genesis 42:25 that Joseph had their money and replaced it in the sacks. We're left to wonder how both can be true that they'd receive the money but also it was in their sacks. But but the point stands that that they can have peace and and not fear because God did it. You know that's what the brothers said too back in chapter 42 when they found the money in their sacks. What is this that God has done to us? But when they discovered it, they thought God was doing something terrible to them, not providing for them. Well, here the Egyptian is correcting them. God is providing for you. He is taking care of you. Do not fear. This too is God's mercy. You know, honestly, these brothers really do deserve some kind of criminal charges, even if it's not for stealing money. But in fact, the opposite of what they fear comes true. Instead of being made servants, they are served. They have their feet washed, their donkeys fed. And this too, we say, is God's mercy. They do not deserve this kind of treatment. But by God's mercy and provision, our Almighty God overcomes our sins and relieves our fears. Now, I want you to imagine this, reading this if you were the original audience. Moses wrote this for the generation that had left slavery in Egypt. What that means 
is the nation of Israel had lived to see their very fear realized. After a generation, the Egyptians eventually did actually fall on them and make them servants after the death of Joseph. So how do you think they would have responded reading this story? Well, I hope it would have given them assurance in retrospect that even in their enslavement, it was according to God's plan. They had no reason to be fearful in it or anything else that might come their way. Do not be afraid. God has, God does, and will provide all that you need. And I think that's the lesson for us too, saints. How many of our fears and anxieties are about provision for the future, that there will not be enough for all of our needs? Sometimes even the malice of men will keep us from having what we need, like, for example, the unjust loss of a job. The lesson here in the words of the Egyptian steward is that your almighty God can provide for all your needs. We need not even fear evil done against us, even injustice that it will ultimately harm or, or hinder God's good plan for us and provision for all we need. Certainly this doesn't mean that, that you'll be rich, but it does mean that your Father knows what you need. He feeds the birds, He clothes the grass, and He will provide for you. The God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks. But we have one last scene to read and observe how God acts. So read with me our third and final scene. Now the brothers with Joseph, starting in verse 26. And notice, again, no mention of God doing anything, but God is at work. Start with me, Genesis 43, verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Well, Joseph comes home for their noon meal, and they present their gift to him and, and bow down. Now, 11, all, 11 brothers, and that bowing down twice. 
So I think we should see finally here in chapter 43 the fulfillment of what God had had told Joseph in dreams all the way back at the start. Genesis 37. I, I think that's why Moses mentions them bowing down twice, both in verse 26 and finally at the end of 28. Twice they bow down to correspond to the two dreams. They won't bow down, down again to Joseph in the, the rest of the narrative. I think maybe that's why, even though their father isn't there, they call him your servant, our father. Even if he isn't there to bow down to him, he is his servant. But the key of this passage comes when Joseph asks about his brother Benjamin. The text calls him his brother, his mother's son there in verse 29. And at the sight of Benjamin, what does Joseph feel? Verse 30, then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. His compassion grew warm. Now, unfortunately, none of the English translations do us a favor here. But it is, as I mentioned earlier, that sometimes this word for mercy is translated as compassion. This is, in fact, the same word used in Jacob's prayer for mercy. May God grant you mercy. Now Jacob feeling compassion, mercy. The fifth and final thing we see God doing here, God grants mercy. In answer to prayer, number five, God grants mercy. In verses 26 through 34. You know, the the text does present a very natural explanation why Joseph might feel compassion. Because it's his brother. And he is well. They, in fact, have not hated him and treated this other favored brother as they had him. But we, of course, know better than just to leave it there at a natural explanation. Jacob had, in verse 14, prayed that God would grant them mercy before the man. And here they are before the man. And what does he feel for them? Compassion. Mercy. God is sovereign even over the emotions of this man. The man that God had sovereignly placed here, not only to provide them bread, but to bring about their reconciliation. I think that's why Joseph seats them by birth order and gives Benjamin, conspicuously at the end, a portion five times as large. Why is it that Joseph has not yet revealed his true identity? It's because his tests are not yet over. He is still pursuing reconciliation. Now, what is done? He he has recreated the scenario of leaving one brother, that is Simeon, behind. And they passed, despite Jacob's reluctance, despite the ulterior motive of getting food, they did come back for Simeon with Benjamin. But what if he recreates the scenario that got him into Egypt in the first place? What if he shows favoritism toward Benjamin? And what if, in further tests, they have an opportunity to leave a son of Rachel behind instead? Will they resent Benjamin's fivefold portion and be tempted to destroy him? Well, that will be the test that they wake up to 
tomorrow, our sermon text, Lord willing, next week. But for now, in the end of 43, mercy and fellowship. God is merciful towards his people through the risen and reigning son, Joseph. Joseph continues to point us to Christ, who is how God answers now prayers for mercy. God's mercy is now poured out on us through the risen and reigning son, Jesus. It is because Christ died in our place that he can treat us with mercy. Our triune God can be both just and merciful because Jesus bore the penalty that we deserve. You know, we do deserve to die and that immediately for our sins. Again, friends, there is no dividing line between those who do deserve God's judgment and those who do not. Every person as a sinner deserves God's righteous judgment. We all need mercy. God is able to be merciful to sinners, to, to you and me, because he poured out his just judgment on Jesus. And those who now are objects of his mercy are invited to fellowship with him. These brothers don't know it yet, but they banquet in the hall of a man they have sinned against grievously. But he does not treat them as they deserve. By the provision of mercy, this man invites them to eat from his very table to have fellowship with him. You know, friends, the good news of Jesus Christ is not just that we escape punishment, as good as that is. It is that we are invited to fellowship with our God. The guilt is cleared so that sinners can have relationship with a a good and holy God. The greatest gift of the gospel is not justification, to be declared right with God by faith. Yes, justification is, is primary, it is fundamental, but it is not the highest blessing. Listen to how John Stott put it in his, his wonderful book. This is John Stott, Knowing God. Were I to ask to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect to ever meet a richer and more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Adoption through propitiation. The sin-bearing death of Christ, his sacrifice that propitiated God's wrath, that is, satisfied it, was for the purpose that we would enjoy God as Father. Adoption through propitiation. That we would be adopted into his family to have fellowship as his children. Church, this is why you were made. Not just to be not guilty. It would be wonderful of Joseph to forgive his brothers and send them on their way back to Canaan. But it is better. Our privilege is to know, love, and enjoy the fullness of God. He is, in the end, the greatest treasure that he provides. His patience, 
His pledge, His answer to prayer, His mercy all lead us here to know the only God and Jesus Christ. John Stott again, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as Father. So I ask, how well do you understand the message of Christianity? How much do you make of being called God's child and having God as Father? His blood has washed away all your sins. His wrath completely satisfied. But more than that, we who were once his enemies are now seated at his table. Our Father's mercy has brought us near in fellowship. That is our hope today. Not only the forgiveness of our sins and his wrath completely satisfied, but the invitation to those who were once enemies to be seated at his table. Let's go to that good God now in prayer. Please pray with me. Our good God, our almighty God and Father of mercies, we praise you that your mercy has paved a way not only for our sins to be cleansed, Lord, not only for your wrath against us to be satisfied, but, Father, now to be invited into full and forever fellowship with our Father. Oh, Lord, we do pray that today you would make us grateful for the gift to be called children, to be adopted into your family, to know you as Abba, Father, or to relate to you forever as the one who provides for us, the one who is patient towards us, the one who hears our prayers, Lord, all because you are our good Father. It is to this, Heavenly Father, that we pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in a moment we will have a chance to respond to God's great offer of mercy and fellowship in worship through song. I invite you to just to spend the next moment in silent reflection considering what you've heard this morning, especially considering all that God does for you because of His mercy. Please take a moment of silent reflection. <laughs>